Hi, I'm Lori Denning, and welcome to my podcast, The 20-Minute Scriptorian, where I explore the LDS scriptures and the path of the disciple of Christ. I'm a longtime gospel doctrine teacher, sometime institute and seminary teacher, and a current theology student. My friends and I are often discussing history, context, and theology, and thought that you might appreciate it too. I think of it as a bridge between academic and inspiration. However, these opinions are my own and not an official representation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Thanks again for listening, and I hope this will be a blessing to you on the road to discipleship. Welcome back, Scriptorians. This is Lori, and you have joined us for the 20-Minute Scriptorian, and we are headed into Come Follow Me for the Book of Hebrews. So sit back and relax as we jump into my very favorite book and the New Testament, the Epistle to the Hebrews, next on the 20-Minute Scriptorian. So as you remember, this is the all about section, which we're going to take really the context, the overview, structure, who, what, when, and, and really, before we dive into the, to the scripture itself, we want to kind of give some background <clears throat> tell you what's going on. So that's this all about section. And we are in Come Follow Me. We're in November, and we're heading into Hebrews. Now, <clears throat> one of the things you recall if we talked about in some of the other epistles in the New Testament is how the New Testament is arranged. And so we put the Gospels first, and Acts is really part of Luke and Acts. It's really kind of a continuation of Luke. And then we head into the letters, and the letters are arranged by length. So how long they are to how short, and then in the middle here you get this odd letter to the Hebrews. They uh, was written by Paul, maybe not by Paul. No one really knows. We'll come back to that in a second. But uh, so that's why it's next, and that's why it's long. So it's kind of out of order. We're like, well, we're not really sure where to put it based on how long it is or who wrote it. So then we'll head off to James and Peter and Jude and some of those before we head into the Book of Revelation. So it's kind of it falls in this weird spot. But it, if you remember that they were written. Uh, by or, or organized by length and then this word pops in it kind of helps you remember it's because it's different so let's talk about that let's go through a couple things first I want to talk about who the author is who the audience is maybe when it was written and really the purpose of this letter is helpful as we dive in so first the author which you mentioned um, honestly we don't know who wrote it uh, Joseph Smith wrote some things that may seem to think it's Paul uh, but no one actually knows never says who it is like so many of Paul's letters he says this is Paul and I'm an apostle and I say who it is we don't have that here additionally the style is really different and so when they look at not only the Greek but all the things that he says it's very different uh, written he may have had a different scribe it may have been someone else so it never says that it was written by Paul uh, it could have been Barnabas or Apollos or somebody else um, that talked that that was one of his maybe his mission companions but we do know that there's a little bit in um, chapter 2 verse 3 and 4 where he says that this is the author writing so that he had firsthand relationship with the disciples the apostles who are around Jesus so even if we don't know really who wrote the letter we know that it's really anchored in the teaching of the apostles okay so that's kind of who we don't know but someone who knew the apostles and is well versed there Second, who's the audience? Well, if you think back to the other letters, think about what they're titled. They give us a clue to who they were written for, who audience. And a lot of them, it's like the Thessalonians, the Colossians, the Ephesians. And those are the people that live in those cities of Ephesus or Thessalonica. So it's the Thessalonians or Colossae. So it's the Colossians or the Romans because they live in Rome. Get it? And then, but some of the others are written too. We did these the last couple of weeks, the the bishops, so they're written to Timothy and Timothy and Titus, so they are written to a certain bishop. 
But Hebrews doesn't really follow that if you think about it, right? It's like, well, is there a city called Hebrew? Is there a person called Hebrew? No. So it, neither one. But what we do seem to think is that these this audience of the letter is wherever they lived, um, knows them well and assumes that they really know the Old Testament. So they are probably Christians that came from a Jewish background. So they are, these are Jewish converts. And, and you'll see that. And that's why they say it's, hey, this is the letter to the Hebrews. Those have been converted through that. So that's why you see that. Now, it's one of the reasons it's my favorite is we learn so much about Christ and his role and and then these people that transitioned. One of the things I love about this is in some ways these are the same people that we find in the Book of Mormon, right? They're an Old Testament people who follow the Savior and that's kind of who these Hebrews are. So you'll see some really similar teachings about the role of Christ speaking to those who would have come from that Old Testament background. So pretty cool stuff. So that's kind of who uh, who we think wrote it, the audience. Uh, one of the things is what are we writing about? Like what is the purpose or uh, what was the, why was this being written? And, and one of the things you see is uh, in chapter 10 is actually gives us the purpose of why this was written. And at the end of chapter 10, um, the author talks about, we'll call him Paul just for sake, for ease sake, but he says, um, uh, verse 32, he says, remember those earlier days after you'd received the light, when you endured a great conflict of suffering, sometimes you were public, publicly exposed to insult and persecution, and other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. So he's writing to a group of people who maybe during persecutions, but he's writing to strengthen and to encourage them. And he's, he's going to kind of these weary members and they're beaten, beaten up and persecuted. And they're, they're tempted to turn back to their old religion or their old ways. And he, he wants to respond and give them courage and renewed life in this suffering and say, don't forget about those gifts and these resources that God has just lavished on you. And so he wants to buoy up this faith of the men and women in this group and remind them about what they've learned and, and urge them to, to stay loyal to, to Christ. And so that's, that's kind of it. So ask yourself, is there ever a time when I'm tempted to maybe not be as valiant as I was, or maybe I feel the persecutions or life is just getting the best of me. And I, I think, oh, it's too much. I can't get to all this stuff. I just, I just, you know, I'm good. <laughs> I'm just going to take the minimum road, the road least uh, more traveled and just kind of take a break for a while. This letter's for you, right? If you're being persecuted or you just feel the, the stress of life getting to you, the letter of the Hebrews is for you. And that's who we can kind of see what this purpose and this authorship is to the Hebrews. So that's kind of the purpose, I think, as we see that in 10, 32, and 34, 35 is what I read earlier. Okay. Um, what else? There's one other thing I think we see is the main goal of this letter, this main theme, and that we're going to see that Christ is going to be this superior method, uh, the superior role to maybe the old ways, whether, remember, if you were an Old Testament person or a Jew in the day, you might have been tempted to turn back to that, right? Your old habits, your old custom, your old belief. And the, uh, Hebrews is going to tell us that Christ is superior. This new way is the superior way. And then 
what we said, kind of encourage you, buoy you up during this. So those are our two main purposes. Uh, there's our audience, our author, kind of the who, what, where of going on. Again, we don't know who it's been written to. We don't know exactly when, but that's kind of the idea. Which leads us to a f- a kind of the structure. Uh, well, something that comes up a lot is we've talked about a little bit of genre is what kind of letter or book are these? So one thing that helps me as I'm studying is to ask myself, besides the who, what, where, but what kind of book is this? Is this a a letter like we've been reading? It's an epistle? Or is this something like we're going to come up on the book of Revelation where it's um, apocalyptic literature? Or is it like a gospel that's going to tell us about the role of Christ and kind of a is it history? Is it Joshua? Is it something else? And so th- that's a genre is what kind of type of book is it? And, and there are lots of types and they change all the time and they're little subgroups, but just generally say, is this a letter? It mostly looks like a letter. We don't see some of the elements of a letter. It has a lot of feeling of almost a sermon, right? It's going to be much more well-crafted. It's not going to have that, hey, say hi to Phoebe while you're there and that kind of stuff in the introduction that we see in other letters. So it has some sense of a letter, but think of it a little bit more like a sermon, right? This is going to be, reminds me of like a conference talk. (laughs) If we sat down at general conference and uh, one of the apostles gave a lecture to a group of people saying, hey, they were kind of challenged to understand the role of Christ and maybe fall back on old behaviors, this would have been the talk you'd give. And so I think of Hebrews as a sermon or a conference talk is kind of our genre. That kind of helps, which leads us to a few things that you're going to have to remember. One of the reasons we call this letter to the Hebrews is because there's so much reference to the Old Testament, and there are a few fundamental things that this author is going to assume, uh, and and he just knows that you know, and so it's a good reminder to refresh ourselves with what these things are. First, you're going to have to remember this is an Old Testament people you're writing to are the Hebrews. And so a couple of the stories that you're going to have to really remember, and he's going to set this up on this foundation. First, Abraham. You got to remember about the story of Abraham and how Abraham was the covenant and it was going to be a blessing to all the nations that this Abrahamic covenant was going to go out to all the nations. And then you're going to also remember the story of Moses at Mount Sinai, where he received the Ten Commandments and the covenant and also the the rest of the commandments. So you kind of remember Abraham, you remember Moses and the covenants. Uh, Also, you're going to remember the priests and the law of sacrifice. And one thing that's a little bit easier for us to remember is uh, temple worship. So whether it's the tabernacle or temple, this author is going to say these people really are going to remember the importance of sacrifices and the covenant. And then after these things, he's going to finalize with the uh, the wandering of the uh, Israelites in the wilderness before they got to the promised land. So there are some sections that are kind of remind us of these stories. Abraham, Moses, priests and sacrifices, wandering in the wilderness, getting to the promised land. And if you kind of refresh yourself with those stories, it'll make a lot more sense. Uh, now the author is assuming that you remember these. So just you do, you remember them. These are familiar stories to us, but it helps to kind of refresh. And then those things will help us move on. All right. 
the structure. There have been 50,000 ways that this has been said that there's a structure and how these link together. And I'm just going to give you a basic one. Remember, this is just arbitrary. It's something that just helps me understand it, but uh, it might help you. So first in chapter one, we're going to learn kind of the thesis, kind of the theme, kind of the main point. And it's in the past, God spoke to our ancestors in different ways. But in these last days, he'd spoken to us in his son. And that's right out of the gate in chapter one. So saying, hey, it might have happened in the past in different ways, but in the last days, the superior, the, the different new way is through Christ. And so that's going to be our main overarching theme here that we see. Then chapters one through two, he's going to show how Christ is better than just even the angels or the instruction. Um, and we'll get in, we might get into this in the next one, but one through two is kind of angels and the Torah or the commandments, the law. Chapter three through four, Moses and the promised land and how Christ is superior to that. Five and through seven is how Christ is greater than the old way of priests and sacrifices and similar to Melchizedek. It's a great chapter. And then eight and 10, uh, sacrifice and covenant how these new sacrifices and the new covenant are going to come up. So that's kind of through eight through 10. So you're going to do angels and Torah, Moses promised land, priest and Melchizedek sacrifice and covenant. And he's going to show how Christ is, is superior or a foreshadowing of all those things were foreshadowing to him. Then we're going to see these great models of faith through 11 through 13. So 11 through 13, he's going to talk about how there are these great Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rahab, Joseph, Jacob, Moses, uh, women and men that were great examples of faith, not just obedience, but faith, how they went through hardship and yet showed faith. So you're going to see this through the very end. Um, that's, that's the basic structure that helps me understand kind of what's going on. So that was the who, what, when, where, this foundation, Abraham, Moses, priests, wilderness. And then you're going to see that in the structure that Christ is superior or at least was foreshadowed or an example of all these things in the past. So that's kind of the basic outline of Hebrews. Um, next, let's take a breath. And then I want to come back and I want to talk about a few key points, angels and Melchizedek, uh, as you read on in the next section. I forgot I did I did want to do one other section to kind of show you um, that you're going to find as you read through this uh, one thing that helped me was uh, one of the authors that I was reading pointed out that Moses is you're going to see a lot of of covering of recovering of Moses kind of as a as a theme is that remember that Moses is this mediator of Israel's covenant so you have the covenant of Abraham, but Moses is the one that is the central importance. So this this author, this writer of Hebrews, Paul, is going to show that that the in the Mosaic era and back in Moses's time, that it's it there's a compare a continual comparison going back to this Moses. Like remember Moses, and and then it's gonna and it goes through the whole thing. So it's not just one time you're gonna hit Moses, but you're gonna see this Moses comparison. And it's saying that instead of saying Moses isn't just one of many that's featured in these, Jesus is better than Moses, or Jesus is this symbol of the Mosaic law. It's going to say that Moses, Moses and Jesus are just kind of yoked together all the time. They're bringing us both to the covenant. So Moses took us through in the old times and Christ is now this new one. So you're going to just watch for it. That This figure of Moses is the mediator of the covenant. And now 
Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. Uh, they're always kind of together reminding us. Um, so, so there's that. One of the other things that I wanted to point out is when you read chapters one through two, you're going to talk about this idea that Christ, uh, or I'm sorry, um, uh, Moses received the, the God's law on Sinai, right? And we know that story, right? He goes up on top of the mountain and he comes back with the tablets and, and that story in, at this point in time in the first and second century of Christianity, one of the common beliefs was, it says that the Lord gave Moses the tablets, but they also said an angel gave him. Now, maybe it was the great angel, right? Which is Christ, that, that it was Christ himself, but it was common to say a great messenger, an angel. So when you read back through this, remember, they're going to say, well, he, Christ is better than these angels or was the angel because that was how they saw the story. So we would say, well, it was the Lord. But in those days, it was common, a common belief that it was an angel that did it as well as a representative of the Lord. So when you see this, he's better than the angels. He's referring back to Moses, referring back to Sinai, referring back to the, the tablets being given. Okay. So in one through three, there's kind of this reference between, um, the angel part. Additionally, you're going to see this comparison over and over. So I said, well, Moses and Christ are equally yoked. You're going to see a lot of this how much better it was. There's this comparison, superior, it's far superior. So in a couple of verses, a better hope to draw near God in seven and how far superior it must be to the covenant in 722. And then there's um, in eight, the first covenant had been irreproachable. There'd been no occasion for a second, right? So there's going to be a second one because we needed something better. And then um, the experience for Israel at Sinai um we want to come to the new Mount, Mount Zion, and we stand before Jesus, right? And it's even better than Abel in this new covenant. So you're going to see this, just watch for it. You're going to see this comparison, how Christ and the new covenant is better than those old ones over and over and over and over. So it's this comparison all the time. So he's not trying to just say that Christ is just preeminent and the best one, but he's trying to show how you don't want to go back. Why would you go back, right? You've got this better, higher law that the old law was pointing to all along. So don't restrict yourself. Don't go back to that thing. Remember that the law is perfected, that there's a better hope that we can draw nearer to God. For the first covenant, I love it how it says, like the first covenant, if it had been irreproachable, there would have been no occasion for a second. If it was so great, we wouldn't need a second one. So don't go back to the old one. Right. And maybe that's a good question to ask ourselves. If we have felt the covenant in our own lives, if we have started the covenant path, don't go back. You know, stay on it. It's worth it. So you're going to see that comparison section over and over again. And once you see it, if you were just to write on your notes uh, as you wrote, you'd say, um, you'll see how often it's a better way. And remember the first few verses we read in the past God spoke to our ancestors in many different ways but in these last days he has spoken to us in his son a better way a better way is Christ the new covenant is the way we've been waiting for one of the other things you're going to see in kind of chapters five through seven that I mentioned is this the priests and the priesthood and so uh, we love these verses right we talk about hey how this new priesthood is there and you're going to talk about um Melchizedek. Now, you might say, well, we know all about the uh, priesthood of Melchizedek, the Melchizedek priesthood. But what 
what other things do we know that they're probably saying here? We, we know, and he's not going to give you this background. You just have to kind of remember it. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of background. So when you read this, you say, I know what this punch was for them to go back and talk about Melchizedek. Melchizedek is remembered in scripture in this single tiny episode, this little story in Genesis 14. And it's like three verses. Genesis 14, uh, 17 through 20. And you're going to see this time when Abraham, the great patriarch, meets Melchizedek. And uh, Melchizedek, um, uh, Abraham gave him uh, food and drink, right? Refreshed him. And then he recedes into the shadows of history. And there's not much mention of him. So they have bread and wine. And then it says that, um, also it says that uh Abraham pays tithing to him. So he's somebody important. He's somebody that has the priesthood, but he's paying tithing. And then there's really no mention in him of him later, right? So he just disappears, this this phantom character. But in um, Psalms 110, verse 4, we hear an important, there's a couple lines here. And these are two things I want you to remember. The, the uh, Psalms 110 says, the Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. And he says, you are a priest forever just like Melchizedek. So this statement comes at a time when the Levitical priesthood had been very visible, right, in the presence of Israel for like 350 years. So they'd been practicing this Levitical priesthood with the Levites and the sacrifices and the temple and all those things. And now God is declaring something new, that he will install a priestly office. Uh, he'll put an individual who will be a priest like Melchizedek. So how is the, so it's not going to be a levitical priest it's going to be someone like melchizedek and and the line was you are a priest forever just like melchizedek so like melchizedek this new priest will owe his priesthood not to where he was born but directly appointed from god the priesthood of melchizedek isn't a uh, one you're born to but it is directly appointed and it's forever so he will be forever. So the fulfillment is guaranteed this oath to, that it's unchangeable, that it's divine purpose. And isn't that just exactly like the Melchizedek priesthood is today as God, as Christ as its rep, as high, high priest, its representative. It's directly from God and it's a priesthood forever. Uh, the writer of Hebrews is going to really call on this difference between the Melchizedek and the Levitical priesthoods, right? He's going to say the Levitical high priest was it was totally regulated by the Old Testament, right? Here's what they did, here's what they said, and they had to trace back their priesthood uh, through Aaron on their father's side, and their mother had to be a pure Israelite woman, right? And, you, and then at some point, they leave. Um, there's a you probably don't remember these stories very well. I just learned this again, but that there was uh, a priesthood of Eli. And you remember Eli and Samuel at the tabernacle, and then his family, um, they sin. And the sons die, and then Eli dies. And so the priesthood goes to a cousin of the same ironic Levitical family, and it goes to the family of Zadok. And then that's the line that you have to trace back to show that you can be a priest. And that is where you get the name Sadducees. Sadducees come from Zadok. And so you have to say, I can show in my documentation that I come through my father through the line of Zadok. And, but, and no mixed families or anything to be a Levitical priest. However, in Melchizedek, it doesn't have to do anything with that. It is only through the appointment of God. 
So the scriptures are silent. It says he doesn't have a parent. He doesn't have a family. And so it's saying because he's not like Aaron. He is not like Melchizedek. He is saying that God is announcing a change in the law. The higher priesthood is here. The other thing that's uh, fundamentally different is this secession is that, um, that there were no scriptural limitations. So instead of just following what the Old Testament said on your behaviors, right, you didn't have to have this ancestry, but you, you have God's divine command as a priest. And so you can, you'll hold it forever. And it's, um, just total. it's permanent. It's just a, you'll have this priesthood forever. And that's what Christ is bringing. So when they refer back to the Melchizedek priesthood, they're saying it's one now comes from God. It doesn't have to be about mother, father, it doesn't have to be, and it's not guided by the rules of the Old Testament. This is a higher priesthood. So this priest owes his appointment to God and he will have be permanent. You are a priest forever. So these become crucial when he speaks about Christ because he's saying Christ is a priest like Melchizedek. He's not an Aaronic priest. He's not a Levitical. He is that, those two areas. Uh, amazing, amazing. And just amazing if you think about what we have today is we're back with the Melchizedek priesthood. And if you know the name of the Melchizedek priesthood, it's even more powerful. So I just wanted to draw that out as you get to that, this idea of Melchizedek, and it's just so exciting. So, so anyway, so there are a couple of things as you read through and you learn a little bit about the book to the uh, book of the Hebrews. And we've gone way over time. Okay, well, there you go. We're done. Uh, talk to you next time. Keep reading Scriptorians, and we'll continue on Hebrews.